Good morning to you. Today we are in 1 Samuel 5. And Houston, we have a problem. The problem is the Philistines have a misunderstanding regarding their standing. God had permitted his people to be defeated in a previous chapter and his ark to be captured. But the Philistines made grave miscalculations about their situation. After slaying 34,000 Hebrew soldiers and capturing the ark, they wrongly concluded that their god, Dagon, was greater than the one true God. But their greatest battlefield spoil was about to spoil them. The ark was no trophy to be trifled with. God Almighty was going to bring them trouble and trauma and tribulation. In 12 short verses today, their prize will be despised and it will be the source of their demise. Misunderstanding their standing will maximize their problems, it will agonize their bodies, and it will terrorize many unto their graves. And so with that in mind, if you would turn with me in the Word of the Lord to 1 Samuel 5. And as we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to help us in His text today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of the church to speak to us from Scripture. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, instructing, and training in righteousness of the man of God would be thoroughly equipped. We believe the Lord Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We believe that it is impossible for God to lie. And Jesus, who is the truth, told us that we should be sanctified by the truth. And then he told us, thy word is truth. And so we pray today from this Old Testament text that your word would not return void, but that it would come forth, that it would roar forth, that it would rouse us, and that every single person, whether they're attending this morning or they're joining us virtually now or later, would have at least in one portion of this passage, of this sermon, your spirit speak to them in a very tangible way from Scripture. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. Amen. The Word of God says in 1 Samuel 5, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer, that's where the battle was, to Ashdod, and they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple, and they set the Ark beside Dagon. Dagon is their god. We'll talk about him in a minute. Verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and they, they put him back in his place. <laughs> but the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and his head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold, and only his body remained. Verse 5, And that's why this day, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Verse 6, The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. And he brought uh, devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. And when the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us. 
because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon, our God. <laughs> so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, what shall we do with the Ark of Israel? And they answered, well, we'll have the Ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath, another of their five famous cities. So they moved the Ark of God of Israel. Verse 9, but after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was heavy against that city, throwing it into a great panic. And he afflicted the people in that city, this time both the young and the old, with an outbreak of tumors. And so they sent the Ark of God to Ekron. And as the Ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They brought us the Ark of God of Israel around to kill us and our people. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send back the Ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death has filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it. And those who did not die were afflicted with tumors. And the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Now verse 1 tells us that the Philistines, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. So let's get in the Old Testament here. Who are the Philistines? Okay, they were Israel's principal enemy from the latter days of the book of Judges to the early part of the monarchy in Israel. And the, the Philistines are mentioned over 150 times, just in First and Second Samuel. Now, the Philistines were originally a sea people. Uh, Amos 9.7 tells us these sea people came from Crete, which is an island off of Greece. And extra-biblical literature tells us these Minoan migrant marauders, these maritime marauders, these sort of pirate people, they first fought Pharaoh Ramses III in Egypt. And they were unsuccessful in, in a conquest of that area, and they were pushed off. So they said, we'll go farther away, we'll go along the coast farther, and that's how they ended up in the land of Israel. So the Philistines went a bit east. They colonized the coastal plains of southern Canaan right along the Mediterranean. They didn't venture farther than that, but they stayed in those coastal areas. So here you have the Philistines on the western side of, of Israel at about the exact same time as the Hebrews enter the Holy Land by the hand of God in the east. That's going to generate quite natural conflict between these peoples. Israel's been given the land in which the Philistines now stand. And so there's going to be an inevitable battle. Now the Bible mentions uh, Philistines interacting with Abraham and Isaac all the way back in Genesis. But scholars tell us that those Philistines are almost certainly either a very early migration of these boat people or quite likely a different group of people altogether. Because in Genesis, the Philistines have one king and one city at Gerar. But all through Judges and all through Samuel, our Philistines, they have five chief cities. And they formed a, a pentapolis of government, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. And our Philistines, our Philistines are a fierce warrior people. And they quickly conquered the Hittite and Amorite nations that were sitting there before they landed. What made the Philistines so formidable in battle was this. Their pioneering use of iron. You see, 
A Bronze Age sword, which is what everyone had before the Iron Age, a Bronze Age sword is softer than its iron counterpart. So if I have an iron sword and you have a bronze sword and we go to battle, there's a good chance that in the battle your sword will break and mine will not. Gives you an advantage. Okay. Uh, additionally, iron is super abundant. It's one of the most available resources on earth. But to make a bronze sword, you have to have tin, which is much rarer, which means you can make a whole bunch of superior iron swords compared to inferior bronze swords. But the biggest advantage that the Philistines had in, in the fact that they learned how to handle iron was that iron afforded them the ability to fabricate and to integrate chariots into their army. And that is the big, uh, powerful weapon that they will use against God's people. you got to remember, chariots were kind of like tanks in the ancient world. Uh, and since the Philistines, they settled where? They settled on a coastal plain. And so they were able to monopolize mobile warfare. And they were able to push the Israelites. If you look at a map, they pushed the Israelites literally up the hills where the chariots couldn't reach. And Israel was forced to stay on the high ground. They couldn't take the rest of the ground because the chariots... Mobile warfare is exceptionally easy for mobile tactics. And mobile tactics happen in open areas like the first Gulf War, but harder to do in mountainous regions. And so the Philistines, what you need to know, they were the single greatest threat the Israelites faced in the days of Samson, in the days of Samuel, in the days of Saul, in the days of David, until David defeats them in 2 Samuel 5. So for a long period, the problem for God's people are the Philistines. Verse 1 tells us, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it somewhere. They took it from Ebenezer, where it was captured, to one of their cities, Ashdod. Now, where is Ashdod, and why would you take the Ark there? It's a good question. Ashdod was not the closest or most convenient city. That means they did this very deliberately. They didn't take it to where it was easy. Instead, they moved the Ark about 30 miles southwest <coughs> from Ebenezer, where it was captured, to this specific city. Now, one reason they could take it to Ashdod is Ashdod's kind of their most secure city because it was protected by the Mediterranean on the west and there are four other fortified cities that make up the Pentapolis on the north, the east, and the south. So, so tactically, Ashdod's a good place. But the primary reason why they moved the Ark all the way from where it was captured in Ebenezer to Ashdod was theological. They wanted to make a theological statement about the power of their God and the inferiority of the one true God. Because at Ashdod, the Philistines had their great temple to their chief God named Dagon. Look again, verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it to Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then they carried it where? Into Dagon's temple. And they set it beside Dagon himself. All right, so who is Dagon? Good question. Dagon was the adopted god of the Philistines. He wasn't their original god, but he was their current god. Okay? He was one of many gods that the Philistines worshipped, and indeed he was the chief god that they worshipped. So what happened was, when these Minoan marauders, these pirate people, left their area for whatever reason to find new places to settle, they quickly conquered the local peoples in Canaan. Now, they had migrated from near Greece, and the gods they worshipped back there were useful for what you needed in Greece. They had the kind of gods that could bring you grapes and olives, supposedly. 
But now they were living in the plains of Canaan and they had to grow grain. So they realized we need a God who's able to handle the local realities or we're all going to starve. And so they, they decided which gods can help us. And there were a number of gods. There was Baal and Asherah, fertility gods that brought rain and storms and all of that, brought fertility on the land. And there was this god, Dagon. And Dagon, Dagon was sort of a merman in the Philistine conception. Uh, he had the, the head and the hands of a human being, uh, but he had the body of a fish. So the little merman before there was Disney, right? So this, this is their god, okay? And, and, and he had this large sweeping tail. That was Dagon. Now the Philistines, they took on those other gods. They took on Ashtoreth and Baal. And, but they learned from the people they conquered that supposedly Dagon was the father of Baal. And since Baal was the storm god who brought the rains and we need rain, so the Philistines reasoned, we need rain to get grain on the plain. So we are going to adopt the gods who can sort that out. Practical people in their religion. So if the locals believed Dagon was dad to our other god, Baal, who we need to bring in rain, we'll make Dagon our chief god. Do you kind of understand their thinking? Yeah. Okay, now, this kind of makes sense, I guess. It, 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 and it brings us to the first point today. Under the topic, misunderstanding our standing. Misunderstanding our standing. The first point today is, are our gods adopted and adapted for the things we want? Or is our God really the one true God? And if so, we must do what he wants. I'm going to say that again because it's a really important theological truth. Are our gods adopted and adapted for the things we want? Or is our God really the one true God? And if so, we must do what? He wants. That's right. So the Philistines, they adapted and they adopted uh, whatever in order to achieve what they wanted. And since they were the sea people, when they made a god, they made him half fish, didn't they? They wanted it that way, so their god was that way. And they needed grain on the plain, so they adopted a grain god. They needed the grain to grow in Canaan, so they, offered, they adopted a Canaanite grain god. Uh, they needed help locally, so they adopted the god specific to that region. Their religion was to adopt and then adapt whatever, so long as that god could produce the goods. Now, before we get too high and mighty, are we really that different? We may not bow to stone figures that look like fish, but we often believe that if we pursue certain things with the kind of focus that should only be offered to Jesus, that we're going to be happy. Uh, some people pursue fame, and some people pursue fitness or finances with a zeal that would put most ancient idol worshipers to shame. Works like this. We begin to think if we were just pretty or, or thin, well, then we'd be happy. Or, or, or if we were just richer, or if we had a doctorate, or whatever, then we would be happy. And it's a treadmill that leaves you getting nowhere but covered in sweat. It is a raw deal. It works like this. Let's say your idol is something innocuous. Let's say your idol is sports, okay? And, and, and so what do we do? We think, you know what, if I could just get on the team, I would be so happy. And so we practice and we work, and somehow we make the team. Not everybody makes the team, but let's say you make the team, and you're on the team, and guess what? You're not 
as happy as you thought you'd be. You say, you know, here's the problem. I'm not on the varsity team. Then I'd be happy. And let's say that you beat out all the other kids and you make it to the varsity team and then you're there and you're still not yet happy. So you say, the problem here is I'm not on the professional team. And if you can somehow make it to the professional team and you wake all your energies and this becomes your God and you, you do the traveling baseball and you do all this stuff and you work out and you eat right and you do everything and you make it to the professionals. And then you get there and you go, you know what, I'm not quite yet happy. So you know what the problem is? The problem is we need to win the championship. If we just won the champion, if I was on the championship team in professional sports, then I would be, I would be so happy. And let's pretend you achieve that, and most professional athletes never serve on that team. Let's pretend you achieve this thing you've been reaching for. You know what you're going to find? After that wonderful moment when the confetti falls, and just after uh, the town cheers you when you do the parade, about five minutes later they start writing, but what about next year? Do you see the treadmill? So as we run ourselves ragged, Here's the question, Christian. Are we misunderstanding our standing? Are our gods adopted and adapted for the things we want, or is our God the one true God, and if so, we must do what he wants? He wants. If God is God, then we owe him our allegiance. It is not the other way around. And that brings us to our second point today. Our second point today is this. God is perfectly capable of defending his honor in whatever endeavor. Friends, hear this. God is perfectly capable of defending his honor in whatever endeavor. And in the ancient world, it was common practice for the victorious army to carry off the gods of the vanquished army. And then you set them up in your temple as a trophy before the victors to show who was indeed quite superior and who was now quite subjugated. It was understood that a people whose gods were in enemy hands, well, that was a people that were completely conquered. And so the Philistines, quite delightedly, brought the Ark of God to Dagon's temple. Now Dagon is sitting in his temple. He's high. He's on a pedestal. And over there is the Ark on the floor at his feet. In this case, at his tail, right? Because he's a merman. So on this big lofty perch in the, in the temple of Dagon is the Ark at the floor. Clearly, the Philistines' understanding is that Dagon is the victor, and the Lord is somehow his prisoner, and they were misunderstanding their standing. Because point two is true, God is perfectly capable of defending his honor in whatever endeavor. Verse 1, after the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Verse 2, they carried the ark into Dagon's temple. They set it beside Dagon. But verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of God. Friends, Dagon cannot stand before the Lord. Do you see that? 
Dagon is face down on the ground as though he's not only laid low, but it looks like he's bowing to the Hebrew God. In his own temple, here is Dagon worshiping the Lord. How embarrassing. What's a good Dagonite follower to do? And so the Bible says, they, well, they took Dagon and they put him back on his rightful place, right? Uh-huh. Friend, if your God needs you to prop him up, perhaps you have the wrong God. Let's apply this to the principle of our modern idols, shall we? Do we have to keep propping up our gods? Did you notice that those whose God is greed never seem satisfied? It's been said that that greed is like drinking seawater. The more you drink the thirstier you become. When John D. Rockefeller was one of the world's richest men, he was supposedly asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And he supposedly replied to that reporter, just a little bit more. Even the supermodel, who who, who looks to her looks to, to give her standing in society, is left weirdly worrying, if only my left eyebrow was a little fuller, Now, no one else really notices, right? She's a supermodel. This thing at the supermodel is absolutely obsessing and tweaking and pulling and hoping and injecting. But false gods have a way of needing to be constantly propped back up, don't they? And yet the one true God is perfectly capable of defending his honor in whatever endeavor. Verse 3, so they took Dagon and they put him back on his place. Then you come to verse 4. The following morning, the worshipers rose, and there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground again, before the ark of the Lord. But this time what? His head and his hands had been broken off, and they were lying on the threshold. To get into the temple, you have to step over your God's broken head and hands. So day two, problem two. Notice Dagon never seems to fall to the left or right. He seems committed to falling face down in front of God. It's a big temple, but doggone Dagon keeps falling face down, bowing before the Lord. And it's worse now, his head and his hands have been broken off. Now remember, what was the standard military practices of the day when you defeated an enemy? Well, return to the ancient Near East. One of the things you would do is you would cut off the head of your enemy. The Philistines do this to King Saul. David does this to Goliath. That's just what you did. Number two, when you wanted to get an accurate count of how your soldiers did in battle, the kings would often have them return the lopped off hands of the enemy. So you could get an accurate body count of your commander's actual victory because commanders have a tendency to lie. We took them all out, boss. (laughs) Okay, well, bring me their hands because people don't say, well, here's my hand. Just take it. You kind of have to be dead for that to happen. So it was a very gruesome but effective ancient way of counting battle victory numbers. So friends, understand our story. Understand it in their world. The first day, Dagon bowed before the Lord. The second day, Dagon was executed in his own temple by the Lord. And the Hebrew is quite remarkable here. Uh, The last sentence in verse 4 is delightfully curious in the Hebrew. Literally, it it reads, only Dagon remained on him. 
What's the Bible saying? The Bible's saying with no head, with no hands, only Dagon remained. It's saying who Dagon really was at his core. Dagon could never think, so he doesn't need a head. Dagon could never speak, so he doesn't need a mouth. Dagon could never act because he doesn't even need hands. You have all of Dagon you need if you cut off most of Dagon. And while the hand of the Lord was heavy, the hands of Dagon were missing. Just like Satan, the imposter and the deceiver, will have his head crushed by Christ as promised in Genesis. So Dagon, the supposed victor's head, is now crushed and lies broken before the Lord. Now, if you walk into a temple of your God and you discover that his head and his hands are broken off, wouldn't you think something was fishy? <laughs> in seeing just his broken fish torso on a pedestal and everything else broken off. But let me tell you, my friends, no one is as blind as those who refuse to <coughs> see. You see, even though Dagon's head and his hands have been broken off and they're lying on the threshold, you can't enter the building. <laughs> without having to deal with it. And only his body remained. And the Bible says that's why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter the temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. My friends, instead of saying, my God is no God at all, he's come to pieces in the face of the living God, they say, my fallen idol has come down and so this space of disgrace is somehow now a holy place. Misunderstanding our standing can make everything confusing. Amen? So the truth of Romans 1, uh, of Romans is seen in 1 Samuel 5. Uh, the Bible says in Romans, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And though they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made like mortal man, like birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. If you start down a road and you're committed to that road, you better make sure that road ends where you want to be. Now, if verses 1 through 5 remind us that God is perfectly capable of defending His honor, then verses 6 through 12, they point us to point 3 today. Point 3 is this, God is perfectly capable of increasing His discipline until we begin to listen. God is perfectly capable of increasing His discipline until we begin to listen. You see this throughout the Bible, but we kind of like to make light of it. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was very heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. And when the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us and upon Dagon our God. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And those other cities answered, Well, we'll just have the ark of the God move to Gath. So they moved the ark of God of Israel. But after they moved it, the Lord's hand was heavy against that city, throwing it into a great panic. And he inflicted the people of that city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. Okay, so at Ashdod, first place, there's, there's devastation and tumors. Literally in the Hebrew, this word is swellings, and it's a difficult word to understand what's happening. Many surmise that what's happening here is perhaps the bubonic plague. 
because the Philistines ultimately returned the Ark of God with five gold tumors in our story and five gold rats that are nowhere in our story. So it seems that these guys link appeasing God with tumors and rats. And that's led some biblical commentators to say that's what's going on here. That, that there's one uh, set of, of, of tumors, gold, and, and rats, gold, for each Philistine city in the Patapolis because something's happening with both rats and with tumors in our story. Now, if that's true, you need to remember that what brought the bubonic plague to Europe? Rats. Actually, it was the fleas riding on the rats, but the rats brought the, the problem, right? And so what happened with the bubonic plague? Well, interestingly enough, you have a swelling of the lymph nodes when you get the plague. And so a man named Giovanni Boccaccio described the Black Death, the plague, in Florence in 1348. And he noted that the plague would reveal itself in its victims by the emergence of tumors. And this would happen in the groin or the armpit, uh, some of which grew as large as an apple or an egg. What he's describing is their lymph nodes swelled tremendously. Now, not everyone agrees with this theory. Other scholars say that perhaps this was bacillary dysentery, uh, which would cause people experiencing extreme dysentery to develop hemorrhoids. And that is how the word translates in Aramaic. And there's a suggestion in the original traditional Hebrew rendering uh, that that may be the right rendering. This is why the King James Version will not have swellings. It will have Hemorrhoids. Now, if it's hemorrhoids, then Dagon could not stand before the one true God, and his followers were having great difficulty sitting. <laughs> Whatever the swelling, the thing that is clear is that God is perfectly capable of increasing his discipline until we begin to listen. listen. At Ashdod, there was devastation, but there is no mention of death, the first city. They saw the humiliation of Dagon in his own temple, and they quickly put two and two together. So they called the rulers of the other cities, but those other leaders said, eh, maybe this pestilence is just coincidence. So why don't we try sending the ark somewhere else and see if this goes away? Let's send it to Gath. Now, Gath is the hometown of Goliath later in Scripture. Gath is 12 miles away. But once the ark got to Gath, God increased his discipline until they too began to listen. You see, at Gath, the Bible tells us both the young and old experienced this outbreak. Perhaps over at Ashdod, it was relegated to just the most vulnerable people. Now it was universally available. And so, verse 10, they sent the ark of God to another place, to Ekron. Now what happens at Ekron? Well, as the ark of God was entering Ekron, the Bible says, the people of Ekron cried out, they brought the ark of God of Israel around to kill us and our people. So they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away, let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. Hey, friends, do you notice something in the story? Wherever the ark rested, the people could not. For death had filled that city with panic. God's hand was very heavy upon it, verse 11. Verse 12, those who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. My friends, by the time God increases his discipline, tumors are not the worst outcome. They are the best outcome. Death was now the worst outcome. And those who did not succumb perhaps got a pain in their... <clears throat> so the city was filled with panic. Because it was clear, God's hand was very 
heavy upon it. The people of the sea who looked to their adopted and adapted fishy god of grain were in so much pain that the Bible says their outcry of the city went to where? To heaven. Not to Dagon. Friends, God so increased his discipline until even the pagans listened and they cried out to the God of heaven. And in chapter 6, these Philistines will try to make amends as best they understood. And God, in his great grace, relented. And the whole sordid affair ended. And that brings us to point four today. Lest we have a misunderstanding of our standing. The Philistines who looked to local gods, they learned point four. The one true God is not limited to a location. The one true God is not limited to a location. He's not the God of America. He's not the God of Africa. He's not the God of Europe. He's not the white man's God. He's not the Catholic's God. He's just God. Because the one true God is not limited to a location. If the ark was in their chief God's temple, Dagon would tremble and then he would tumble. If the ark was in Ashdod, there was the heavy hand of God. At first in tumors to the most susceptible, perhaps it was a coincidence, perhaps that was reasonable. So they send the ark 12 miles away to another city, they send it to Gath. But when the ark is in Gath, the Lord's hand is heavy against that city. So that an outbreak goes from the susceptible to the young and old alike. Fit and healthy, infirm and elderly, rich and poor. Everybody said, send that thing out the door. (laughs) There was suddenly unity in that city. (laughs) Get rid of the ark. Then verse 10. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron, about six miles away, to the closest city in Israelite territory. Hey, do you understand what's happening? Get out a map. (laughs) God is moving his own ark back to his own people. But if the ark was in Ekron, God's hand was so very heavy upon it that the city was filled with panic. Those who got just tumors, well, they got off easy, and many died, and the outcry reached God in heaven. That brings us to our final point today, point five. Point five in misunderstanding our standing is this. God will be glorified even in visiting judgment upon those who reject him. God will be glorified even in visiting judgment on those who reject him. You see, if the Philistines wanted to be dirty rats, then God gave them over to to dirty rats. If they swelled with pride over their conquest, they began to swell with pain over their unholy treatment of God's holiness. If they thought they were the mighty harbingers of death in this world with their trusted chariots, And horses, then God was demonstrating it was far wiser to trust in the name of the Lord as he brought death upon them in their very fortresses. If the supposedly iron hand of the Philistines could choke out the Hebrews, they soon learned that the heavy hand of the Lord could snuff out the Philistines. The Ark of God became a theological hot potato. Do you remember the game Hot Potato as a kid? Okay, all right, so... The ark became a theological hot potato, and they could pass the parcel all they wanted. God was going to be revered wherever it landed. Friends, God will be glorified even in visiting judgment upon those who reject him. You see this in Genesis 18.25, when it says, Will not the judge of all the earth do 
right. One day the just judge will bring justice. And so the Bible urges us to seek mercy and forgiveness through Jesus now. Because one day justice is coming. The problem is I can't stand under the justice of God. Psalm 76 is true. But you, O God, are to be feared. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? From the heavens you utter judgment. The earth feared and was still. And when God arose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth, Selah, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. What is that saying? That's saying God will be praised even in judgment. And so this brings this very personally. What have you done with King Jesus? The Bible tells us one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because he is. And that's why the Bible calls all men everywhere now to repent. And the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. No exceptions. Well, what if I was a murderer? That was the Apostle Paul. What if I murdered Christians? That was the Apostle Paul. What if I denied Christ? That was the Apostle Peter. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, I don't know what's going on in your life, but maybe God has tossed you a theological hot potato. There's something you're holding on to and it's burning your fingers. (laughs) Here's what you can try and do. You can try to ignore it, but God is able to increase his discipline until we begin to... If God has tossed you a hot potato, you can try to run from it. But the Bible says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro, and no one can escape his gaze. If the Lord has tossed you a hot potato, you can try to pass it off. But one day you'll run out of days, and there will be no more delay, and you will have to deal with that hot potato. Each of us will meet Jesus. That's a biblical fact. You will either meet Jesus, and he will be your advocate before the Father, saying, This one is forgiven. I paid for him in my own blood. Or he will have to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And that same loving Jesus says, you'll go where the worm never dies and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Old Testament tells us in Proverbs 28, 13, that he who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses it and renounces it finds mercy. The New Testament tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and He is just and He will forgive us and He will purify us from all unrighteousness. But if we claim we have not sinned, we make Jesus out to be a liar and His word has no place in our lives, the Bible says. So what I want to end today is please do not be misunderstanding your standing. Stand in Christ and you stand redeemed for there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But reject Christ and this is what Hebrews 10 warns. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. It goes on to say, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, who's treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant, or insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. With every head bowed and every eye closed, perhaps you're here today and you realize that you have been misunderstanding your standing. 
And you want to leave the shifting sands of man, and you want to hide yourself instead on the rock of ages cleft for thee. You can let the blood of Christ be of sin the double cure. Christ is willing to cleanse you today. For it is by grace we are saved through faith and not through our works. God gives grace, the Bible says, to the humble. And so if you will humble yourself right now and bow to Christ, asking Him to be not just your Savior, but your Lord, He will take you and He will remake you into a new creature based on the promises of God. I'm going to pray. And if you want to receive Jesus, if you want to give your life to Jesus, you just pray with me. It's not a magical incantation. It's the sincere desire of your heart. And it can be expressed like this. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. And there is no other than Jesus Christ, your one and only Son. And so I ask that you would forgive me and you would cleanse me, and you would remake me, you would adopt me as your child, and you would make me a new creature, that you would give me a new nature, that you would give me a holy boldness to tell others about Jesus, and that you would make me an instrument for your glory and my good, because you are a good and gracious God. Amen and amen.